Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning, listeners. This is Lalita Chalaya here, doing a solo show this morning. Lynn will join me later on in the program. We have a jam-packed program for you today. We've got a interview with Dick Nichols from Spain, and we have Marcus Harrington from the Trade Union contributing to his um, section of the program, and Uncle Kevin Healy will follow that one. In the last half hour, we interview um, Humphrey McQueen, who's our regular contributor to the program about neoliberalism. So let's start with the interview we had with um, Dick Nichols from Spain, uh, Barcelona, Spain. He is the um, correspondent for Green Left Weekly and lives in Barcelona and gives an update uh, as often as he can. Spain had its elections in on, on the 24th of May. It was the local council elections, a taste for what's to come later in the year. So here we go. Welcome to 3CI, Dick, and thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us. My pleasure, Lali. Yep. Today we're going to talk about Spain. Uh, it's been ignored in the media here. Now, I believe they had their local government and regional elections on the 24th of May, and we really haven't had much of analysis. From what I understand, there was a leftward swing. Um, in fact, it was a tide, as they call it. I'm just wondering if you could explain what actually happened. We well, yes, basically, basically what happened, uh, and I think is uh, when people look back at this, will be seem to be a very uh, turning point in Spanish politics. Uh, basically, what happened was that the ruling uh, People's Party uh, lost over 10% of its vote. They lost over 2.5 million votes. So those votes didn't go towards the social democratic alternative, the traditional other partner in the two-party system, which is the Spanish Socialist Workers' Party. They also lost, I think, about seven, no, 700,000 votes. But went to to the left in three ways. Uh, the most important way was they went to, these votes went to new citizens' platforms, which were also promoted by various left, the various parties to the left of the social democracy. And they went to the parties of the nationalities, the left nationalist parties in Catalonia, the Basque country, Galicia, and in, in, in Valencia. So what you have is a breakup um, which was prefigured 
but people didn't expect it was going to be as big as this, a, a beginning, a breakup of the traditional two-party system here in Spain. So when you say the left nationalists, there's, there are also n- <coughs> right nationalists, aren't there? Briefly explain the difference between the right and left nationalists. Well, I mean, what's dividing them? Well, uh, Spain's the sort of oddest country in Europe. You've got, it's a country where the central state was run basically by the army, the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church, and imposed Castilian, which is Spanish, uh, as the main language. This was very accentuated under the Franco dictatorship. Uh, what is Spain has never resolved is the relationship between that central state and what you know, Spanish state apparatus and its nationalities, its component nationalities, which, as I said, was the Basques in the north on the Atlantic coast, the Catalans here in the south and Barcelona, around Barcelona, and the Galicians are also on the, at the Atlantic coast. The, the peculiarity of Spain is that the bourgeoisie, uh, originally, there was no such thing as the Spanish bourgeoisie, that is to say the people who made the money in the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century were uh, the Catalans and the Basques. Uh, so the big question was, what was going to be the structure, uh, the arrangement, the way of people living together uh, in, a, in a state, in a country, in, in which there was no central bourgeoisie and in which there was competition between the local bourgeoisies, the local capitalist classes, and the old central state. Uh, and that's been a permanent theme of Spanish politics, really, for... 300, 400 years. These bourgeois, uh, bourgeois nationalists that I refer to, or right nationalists, are the most right-wing parties. They are the parties that represent these uh, ruling elites. Uh, and in the Basque country, that is the Basque Nationalist Party, which has a history of over 100 years. Uh, and in here, in Catalonia, it's Convergence and Union, or not just Convergence, which is really the party of Catalan big capital. So they're the, they're, they're the right nationalists. And then you have left nationalists who are parties that take their orientation from the working class movement, from Marxism classically, um, but are still fighting for national self-determination of the Basques, of the Galicians, uh, and of the, uh, of the Catalans. And so there is, in, in this is why Spanish politics is so complicated, because you have the right-left uh, division, the traditional social division, let's say, but you've also got this national position. What's your position on the national question? Right to self-determination, etc., etc. And, of course, now we have in, in Catalonia, where the right is trying to lead an actual movement for independence, that is to say convergence, and the premier of Catalonia, Artur Mas, is actually leading a movement for independence. So we, the, the central Spanish government not only has to fight the struggle against austerity, which is, is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and which was reflected in these elections in the victory of these, um, or the victory of these citizens' platforms. It's also got to fight against a struggle for Catalan independence, which will also affect, is also affecting the Basques. So they've got a very, very difficult situation. I hope that explains it, but that's, that's the sort of Rubik's Cube of politics that we, is kind of... That's uh, the perfect very Normal here. Yeah. It's just the normal Rubik's, Rubik's Cube. <laughs> It's amazing. But I looked at all the groups that stood in these uh, local government elections, and they are uh, really spun my brain around. You know, you've got Barcelona Together, which is also a citizens' election platform. Then you have the Greens Party. Then you've got the um, Catalonia Greens, the United Alternative Left, Catalan Sister Party of the All Spanish United Left, 
Then you've got the Spa- uh, Spanish Socialist Workers' Party. And it goes on, yes. the right-wing nationalists, left-wing nationalists. Then, of course, the ruling party is the People's Party. So I'm thinking, this is so confusing. But It, it takes a bit of study. I've, I've, <laughs> I've got on top of it after four and a half years. That's, yeah. Yeah. But the, the, the crux of the matter is, um, it's... It's happen- what's happening there is, is similar to what's happening in so many countries around the world, and, and primarily I, I look at Greeks at the other end of the scale. So what do you have in Spain after six years of austerity, basically shrinking wages, miserable welfare payments, young people who don't, who don't have a future to look forward to, impoverishment of small business people, and it's, it's amazing. It's a fight back by the people. From what I read, it seems to be that a lot of grassroots organizations trying to get onto the election platform and voice their dissent from what's going on. I think it's, yeah, that's dead right. And what, what, we've, what we've seen in Spain is very like what's been in Greece, but it's very Spanish. I, it reflects all those complications I just sort of pointed at. What you've had is a huge fight back. Uh, here, a huge social movement, series of social movements. But the most important thing, of course, was that four years ago we had the beginning of the Indignados. You know, remember yes. that the occupation of the squares. Yes. And that was a massive movement. Uh, you know, we had eight, over eighty squares, eighty city squares occupied in, across the whole of Spain, and that fed into politics ever since. It's been affected by that, and that movement really then <clears throat> spent. I would say two and a half, three years, trying to work out uh, what its political voice would be. And some of the traditional parties, like the United Left, thought, "Oh well, we're just the political voice. You know, we've always been saying these things about capitalism. We've always been saying this, so, so people will go to us." But they were seen. The United Left was seen very much as part of the old system. Uh, and then you got the rise, the rise of Podemos. We can, as a sort of expression of this movement the indignado movement that people felt was theirs you know that was and that's the most important thing about this citizens movements is the most important thing is it is a new politics uh maybe people talk too much about it being new politics as if you know you can just invent politics from scratch Mm. but there's definitely this thing of a new politics and the basic i think the basic thing here is that it's driven from mass assemblies mass meetings in in australian language from below from the like from the neighborhoods mm, so it's... for example uh, barcelona in in together uh, had i think we i think they had 120 meetings in the campaign just local street meetings uh, they they did their program on the basis of uh, input from everybody you know especially from the from the poorest and most rep- uh, oppressed neighborhoods and that's what their vote was their vote was just very clear you looked at the map of the vote the vote was in the working class the migrant the poor neighborhoods and convergence and unions candidate this is for the uh, mayoralty of uh, and the you know, town hall of barcelona uh, they they got the um, you know the more comfortably off the posher suburbs and so that's that's what these that's why these movements are very important Mm. Uh, because they also they did two things. They brought new people into politics. They gave them a way of giving politics, but they also forced, or actually were helped build, set up, they forced a bit more left unity. And where they succeeded, you had Podemos and the United Left and other left forces like Equo, which is the all-Spanish Green Party, all supporting the one ticket. That was possible here in Barcelona because you had a very charismatic person as your lead candidate, which was Arda Colau, who had been the spokesperson for the movement against evictions and for decent housing. 
So it's all a product of what you asked in your question, which is, or suggested in your question, which is, you know, six years of ongoing struggle, movements trying to, you know, resist capital austerity, cutbacks in public services, attempts to change the education system to make it all just, uh, you know, a way of producing more efficient called human pieces of human capital, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which we're all familiar with all around the world, yes. but, but, but in a Spanish context. Mm. Uh, and overcoming, you know, the challenges, the traditional blockages uh, in Spanish politics. And, of mm. course, now the big discussion is uh, where do we go from here? If you have just tuned in, you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and streaming live online. I am Lalita Chalaya, and we are in the middle of interviewing Dick Nichols, who is the Green Left Weekly correspondent from Barcelona. And we're discussing the situation in Spain, which had its uh, local elections on the 24th of May. We'll have a community announcement before we continue with the interview. Want to support Tricia's diverse and independent voices? Donate to Tricia's annual Radiothon. We still need your support and it's not too late to donate. Donate now by calling 94198377 or donate online at tricia.org.au or post us a check or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. What we see is enormous social movements and, of course, the electoral component is quantifiable, whereas the social part is not very clear because of the multitude of groups and the the leadership is is the question I I'm thinking of. Okay, which way is the leadership going to swing, or is the social movement going to swing because of the number of groups? So just just you know, it's mind-boggling, as I said before. No, no, it's 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 sort of mind-boggling from outside. But people here are quite used to it. They know who, who all the players are. You know, like yeah. and you should we should remember something which is a bit odd for an Austra- for Australia. Very odd for me coming here is that politics is kind of a normal uh, life here. That is to say, you could, there are television channels, which, if you were in, the 3CR was here in Spain, you would have a national television channel. Wow, and sounds a radio good. Channel. <laughs> and and the, the left has it, uh, as a, there's a commercial channel, Channel 6, six which is you know, a national commercial channel, makes money, etc., etc., run by a sort of Rupert Murdoch, if you like, but which is a left-wing channel. So that's, that's Spain. That's, that's the way things are. So people are used to, you know, all the complications of, of Catalan politics, which by itself is, is more complicated than Australian politics, let alone all, all Spanish politics. But what these movements did was it simply started to overcome the competition uh, and rivalry on the left, left and centre-left. These tickets showed that it was possible if you wanted to to get all these different forces in the room and agree, look, what do we agree about? Well, we agree about this, 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 and this. Let's leave aside the things we disagree about and let's make a platform on what we agree about. Let's put that platform to people. Let's get their input. And then what do you have? You have what they are now calling popular unity, popular unity lists. That's what these were. Uh, And that phrase popular unity or people's unity is now used to describe these platforms. And, and that's a really terrific advance, you know. So in Catalonia, the question is, well, having got Barcelona 
taken Barcelona away for the, from the ruling class, which has got them absolutely pooping in their pants, if you excuse the language. It's all right. um, and the uh, same thing in Madrid. The four biggest cities in Spain are now not run by uh, either the traditional right or the social democracy. They're being run by this, these new platforms. Now, we're talking about six million people here. All right, what's the next step? And, and so the big debate, of course, is can we reproduce this at a regional level before the uh, Catalan elections that will be held in late September here. And those elections will double as a referendum on Catalan independence, like the Scottish referendum, because the Spanish government will not grant any region the right to uh, self-determination or even the right to decide whether it wants to leave Spain or not. And then you've got the national elections at the end of the year. So there's a, a raging debate now about left unity and uh, the United Left come out in favour of uh, reproducing at the national and regional level these sorts of tickets. Though it's, you know, that's the general approach. It's not something you can do like, you know, cooking a, a cake from just doing it again because the conditions are different. But that's the big debate now. And well, Podemos has got its own debate about that inside Podemos. What's our attitude to all of that? Because they are now the major force on the left. They've overtaken the United Left. They're up at their, their vote in the regional elections was nearly 14% on average. So they've got a temptation to say, well, everybody should join us because we're by far the biggest. But people's reaction to that is, well, we've had enough of that sort of traditional political arrogance in this country. Thank you very much. Mm. Um, what the Citizens Platform showed was everybody's got to make a sacrifice. Like here in, in Barcelona, the Initiative for Catalonia, which is the Greens, basically, but it's a Greens of the Communist heritage. It's like the left Greens, if you like to say, the New South Wales Greens, say. <clears throat> they um, said they agreed that their lead candidate, who was a very, as, as initiative, as their lead person in this Barcelona council, would step down. Not that because he was a, a bad person, quite the reverse. It's a, good, a, good, a very good tribune of the people, but because he was seen by a lot of others as well representative of the old politics. You know, so that's that's the sort of sacrifice everybody's going to have to make, uh, or the parties are going to have to make, if they want to reproduce this at the national level. And they're going to have to do that mm. if they want to really compete with the social democracy. Because social democracy took a big hit here, but it's not like Greece. I mean, social democracy is at 3% in Greece now. Mm. That's the old pass-off. Yep. Uh, here, social democracy is at 22 23%, and it's fighting for its life. So for the mass of people, you've got to put out an alternative that is viable to the left of social democracy, that is, that is, that is seen to be viable. Um, and if you, have, if you have a split left to the left of social democracy, the social democrats will recover. Mm -hmm. That's what's going to happen if that happens. Uh, in Portugal, we already see it, that the social democracy is going to get back into government, most likely, mm -hmm. uh, at the next Portuguese election. This is a problem, isn't it? When the left remains divided, the social democracy gets the upper hand. <coughs> and I see it in Australia. The left is very divided here. It's small it may be, but if they get together, they can be a very strong force. And you see social democracy edging its way in um, and, and pretending to offer an alternative when they really don't have a, an alternative. But what, what party in Spain represents the social democracy, Dick? It's the Spanish Socialist Workers' Party, which is, you know... PSOE, they call sounds it. Like, this sounds like a far-left party in Australia. I know. No, it sounds like 
Oh, that's something like the Spartacist League then. No, that's the <laughs> Spanish Socialist Workers Party is, um, that's their name. That's a traditional name. That's mm. what they were called when they were founded. I mean, they were founded, they're not like the Labour Party, like as in Europe, in, in all of Europe. The social democracy has Marxist roots. It's the second, the parties are the second international. So the founder of the social democracy, also known as, who by complete coincidence was called Pablo Iglesias too. Pablo yes. Iglesias is the leader of Podemos. Podemos, yes. Um, you know, they were Marxists. Yes. So you know, the, what do they call themselves? We are a workers' party, but we are a socialist workers' party. And we are in Spain. Therefore, we are a Spanish socialist, socialist workers', workers, workers party. party. Yes. So, that's the name, and it's been that like that for hundred and whatever it is, hundred and thirty years now. Mm. So, but that in their real politics, they're equivalent to you know, Labor in Australia. Mm. So, the, the the essential question here we can um, discuss for the next couple of minutes is the strategy to go forward in the face of elections <coughs> generally coming up in November. Now, the two major forces here are you, the United Left and Podemos, basically, if, if you want to look at the larger components of the fight back. Yeah. Now, one of the, the representatives of uh, United Left, um, Alberto Gasson, um, is, yeah. not, is not very happy with Iglesias from my interview I was reading. They're personal differences. But what are the political differences between these two large left groups? I, think, I don't think they're personal differences. I think that they are real political differences. So what, what, what happened was, remember, Podemos didn't exist at the beginning of 2014. It was just founded in January 2014. Uh, and Podemos was started as a proposal for a new politics of the left from below, um, untainted by the, all the old structures and all the old bun fights, etc., etc., related to the rise of the indignado. So a new, a new party of the left, and Iglesias was the, quote, charismatic spokesperson for this. The actual proposal for Podemos came most of all from the anti-capitalist left, uh, which was is the Spanish section of the Fourth International, uh, the Trotskyist Fourth International. Mm. They actually drafted it. They had been part of the United Left and left it because they just found it, uh, from their point of view, they said it was just too bureaucratic, too right-wing, too conciliatory towards the social democracy etc etc and that reflected of course all the old stalinist versus trotskyist debates in spain that go back to the civil war which which still are very very heated here mm. um uh, which will frankly have to be overcome as one as one of the things that have to be overcome there has to be a, a calm discussion about what all that meant and what do we have to forget and concentrate on now um, and that i think that's one of the things these citizens platforms that are going to help overcome as always, you know, when you get real united steps forward, all differences are seen in a different perspective, start to acquire lesser importance. Um, that's one of the things that has to be overcome. Anyway, so the, the anti-capitalist left got together with Iglesias and his people, who were the, basically the politics department at the Complutense University in Madrid, plus a lot of other different people, and said, we're going to find file found this new party called Podemos. And it got a lot of publicity because um, Iglesias had been doing all this, his, his, his TV and programs and had been on Spanish television, the Spanish television, which is obsessed with politics, as I explained. Yes. And then 
the United Left's attitude to this was, and then put it, you know, the United Left's attitude was, well, we, what are you setting up a new party for? We're, the, we're here, we're mm. the left, let's mm. get together. And Podemos said, well, okay, we'll do that, but on one condition, because the programs were very close. I mean, they were totally reconcilable, 95%, mm. you know, the same thing, really. Um, but Podemos said, we insist on one thing, which is open uh, primary elections for the candidates. They're going to stand in the European elections in May the 2014 European elections. And the United Left said, no, no, we've organised our candidates and they, they have their people lined up. Sure. And they also made, they also said, look, we're trying to create a, a broad alliance with other organisations, which is true, but that could all have been reconciled. Mm. But basically it was, no, we run this show. Basically it was arrogance. There was an arrogance there. Mm. And they paid a terrible price for that. But now what we have is a sort of reverse, a bit of a reverse from Podemos, which went past the United Left. Uh, the United Left has got a big crisis. It's not dead by a long shot, and it's got a lot of very good people, and it's got one thing that Podemos is struggling to have, which is organisation, because it's you know it's got been going for 35 years. It's very rooted in communities, especially in Andalusia, uh, but not just in Andalusia. You know they've got they've got they got whacked around in the regional elections, had a terrible result. But in the local elections, they just held they held up very strongly uh, in these, these last recent these recent elections. So there has to be a, a reconciliation and an agreement between Podemos and the United Left, not just them. But if there's a if Podemos and the United Left can get their act together, that's going to have a terrific impact on all the other players. And I, sh I just should stress there's one force in all of this which is uh, has a very very beneficial in, uh, effect and that is uh, ANOVA which is the Galician left nationalist party sorry to throw all these names in but uh, ANOVA is a left nationalist party in Galicia in the Atlantic coast which started this movement they were the first people to do this sort of thing mm. which was back in 2012 when they set up what they called Galician left alternative uh, AGE age, age, age in English um, and that was the first example of these new sort, this new sort of united politics of the left. And they jumped from out of nowhere, they became the third force in, in Galician politics. You know? So that was an indication to people, hey, wake up, mm. unity is important. Absolutely. Uh, and, and that was based on an alliance between the Communist Party in Galicia and the United, uh, i.e. the United Left in Galicia, with the main forces, the communist, the old Communist Party, and the and ANOVA, this um, or ANOVA, the the Galician left nationalist force, and that demonstrated everybody to everybody the most important thing is find the points of agreement, work out you, where you're going to stand on the national question. That is to say, the minimum position is right of self determination. You don't have to be an independentist, but you have to say our peoples have a right to decide, and we can work out what our proposal is or where we stand. And we can even have different positions on actual independence, but we can say the people are going to decide this. Um, and on that basis, you can start to solve, move towards solving this, this secular, this centuries-old problems of Spanish politics, as well as the struggle against uh, austerity. Sounds good. I hope but the strategy that's is... That's where we're at. And so yes. it's very inspiring. Yes. And it's... It's very hair-raising because it's like a roller coaster ride. You know, one day you get, what's the news going to be today? You know, yes. somebody's done something stupid. But luckily there's enough 
people, the, these election results, I think maybe I should stress this, the, these election results were a terrific shot of fresh air mm. into Spanish politics. And, you know, people, ordinary people started talking about it and mm. still are talking about it. Mm. Barcelona, so, suddenly they weren't talking about the football. You go to the bars, people weren't talking about the football. They were talking about, uh, oh, what do you think about that? Well, who's this article out? What do you think she's going to do, et cetera, et cetera. Well, so they've got a long way to go in November and they've got to keep that vibrancy alive so they can race home to a larger victory because they only in the end got 14% or just almost 15%, I guess, but that is not enough to transform society as a whole at least from an electoral angle. So they have to work a lot harder at the unity that you're suggesting. And it really is common sense, isn't it? You know, it's, it's not rocket science. You say. Right. If you're united... No, exactly right. And, and ex- that's exactly right, Lali. If I just say this, that, uh, you know, you look at all the bloody, you know, organisations and uh, acronyms in Spanish politics, uh, but behind it all is some very simple old truths, which is, uh, if you want, if working people and the massive people who are marginalised and impoverished in this world want to win, uh, then we've got to have a united proposal that exactly. can draw everybody together against the other side. And then, of course, uh, the other side is, you know, they're not just sitting still. Uh, they're working out all their their moves of and course. counter moves. So, yeah. On that note, thank you so much, Dix. All right, Lali. That was Dick Nichols. A Green Left Weekly reporter from Barcelona in Spain. And this struggle in um, Spain is vital because, as we all know, Greece is being held hostage by the Troika. And Spain, Italy and Portugal are in line, in the firing line um, after Greece. And if the left does get together in Spain, we will see, I suppose, a similar struggle in, in, in Spain as well. Hopefully the countries will get, countries will get together to fight Troika, but if you enjoyed that interview, and we will continue to keep an eye on what's happening in Europe because of the massive impact it's going to have at a global level, please think about donating to 3CR. Now, Solidarity Breakfast has just um, re- achieved more than 50% of its um, allocated funds in, for the Radiothon and 3CR. A few programs are coming up that um, you could attend and enjoy while donating to, donating to 3CR. Uh, one is being put forward by the Concrete Gang on the 29th of June at the Palace Hotel, 505 City Road, South Melbourne, entry $30, and it's live music. And if you decide to donate, you can ring 94198377. You can drop in and donate the money. So you can send us a check. You can also go to the website www.3cr.org.au We need your funds to keep the station alive. And now we go on to Rank and File, produced by Marcus Harrington, a member of the NUW and a trade union activist. And welcome to this week's edition of Rank and File Radio on Community Radio 3CR 855 on the AM dial. And I am the presenter of today's program, Marcus Harrington. Today we'll hear the second part of the interview with Graham Haynes. Uh, Graham describes the events that took place in 1986 during the Robe River dispute, which was a union uh, smashing exercise. And Graham, who was on last week's program, also was a shop steward uh, during that dispute. 
Firstly, uh, listeners to this program would remember that in February this year, Bob Carnegie, who was a guest on Rank and File Radio on that program, Comrade Carnegie, launched his election campaign. The veteran unionist was contesting the leadership position of the Queensland branch of the Maritime Union of Australia. Carnegie, the long-standing trade union activist, socialist and veteran of many landmark industrial disputes in Queensland, was elected to the position of the Maritime Union of Australia, MUA, branch secretary in Queensland earlier this week. Many long-time unionists claimed this, that this was the best news delivered to rank-and-file activists in recent times. On the program early, earlier this year, Bob described that he stood on the platform of bringing the union back to its members. Carnegie defeated uh, the deputy branch secretary of 16 years, Trevor Mundy, and in this week's Red Flag newspaper, Tom Bramble highlighted Carnegie's uh, victory in his article, A New Direction for the MUA in Queensland. Bramble posed the question to Bob, uh, what problems do you see in the wider labour movement at present? And uh, Bob's answer was, the great majority of Australian labour movement has been co-opted into the capitalist system. Instead of fighting for workers' rights, they have become giant voting blocks for the ALP. The ALP is 100% committed to capitalism. If it becomes a choice between a trade union and Goldman Sachs, the ALP will always choose Goldman Sachs. Because unions are loyal to the ALP, Bob says, they comply with the electoral cycle of the ALP. Still on the Maritime Union election results, uh, Will Tracy from the Western Australian rank-and-file team, who was a guest earlier in the year on rank-and-file radio, where he spoke about the offshore Fasted and Chevron disputes and the issues associated with fly-in, fly-out work arrangements, was elected as the new National Assistant Secretary, having won that position by a mammoth uh, 2,300 votes. Tracy, the Western Australian rank-and-file team, was elected into that position alongside Warren Smith, who was the guest on rank-and-file radio one month ago, where he discussed the campaign to fight to save Australian shipping. So it's congratulations to three recent guests on Rank and File Radio, Carnegie, Tracy and Smith. On today's edition of Rank and File Radio, we are joined by Graham Haynes, who was a union member in the Pilbara during the minerals boom through the 1970s and 80s. And today, Graham joins us as we look at the Robe River dispute, uh, a key dispute in the Pilbara in the mid-80s. Welcome. And uh, thanks for joining us on the program today, Graham. Oh, it's good to be back. I can recall uh, being on the program in, in 1986. It's, uh, it's great to see three CRs uh, still up and running and uh, providing a, a tremendous service to the community of Melbourne. OK, so that, that's when the 60 workers were sacked. Uh, the Industrial Relations yep. Commission then ordered reinstatement but then the company again uh, responded. How did how did they respond after the reinstatement order? Well, um, they uh, they they locked out eleven hundred workers. Okay. Um, and uh, that's when the, that's when things really geared up. Um, uh, we we had a situation that by about oh, the chronology uh, was that I think it was round about Christmas time. Uh, there was a dispute over the shovels at the mine, the big uh, okay. P&A shovels, and uh, and that resulted in uh, 
in a strike at Tanawanika, which then led to a strike at, uh, at Cape Lambert, of course. And then the, uh, the the dispute proper took on. OK, so um, after the uh, locking out of the 1,100 workers, uh, there was shop committees organised to visit other sites in the Pilbara, but uh, the the uh, bureaucracy once uh, once again stood in the way in this attempt for the workers to build well, solidarity. Yeah, I mean, the, the theme, uh, Marcus, was that, uh, that uh, according to the union leadership uh, in the, from the Perth offices and, and nationally, was that we had to somehow or other play this dispute differently. We had to be squeaky clean okay. and be the good guys in the eyes of the media <laughs> And, uh, and they would fight the process through the courts and we would achieve victory through the courts. And, of course, we didn't for a minute believe that that was going to happen. What we tried to do, that is the rank and file, tried to extend the, the dispute into the rest of the Pilbara, the other uh, three major iron ore so, uh, companies. OK. And, uh, and to that end, we were frustrated because uh, we were denied entry. And uh, that was as a result of other companies uh, having talks with union leaderships at a state level <laughs> and locking us out. Okay. And of course the dispute then took a very different turn because the union bureaucracy uh, then did one of the most unpopular things you can do. Instead of seeking industrial support, they imposed levies. And uh, during the media campaign, yep. We were painted as the renegades and the, the fat cats of the Pilbara and, uh, you know, <laughs> the czars of the Pilbara, if you like, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, marginalised. And, um, and, and the levy, of course, was <clears throat> not to sustain the industrial dispute, but to feed the, uh, the legal bills of uh, very well-paid solicitors and barristers. Yeah, it was at that time there was a volatile situation in Victoria with the Builders Labourers Federation, as you mentioned before, and uh, around that same time, Norm Gallagher educated his workers that what you can't win on the job, you won't win at the conference table, yet there was a well, different attitude. It's still true today. It's still true today, but there was a different attitude from the so-called leadership over in Western Australia to the leadership uh, in, Victoria, in Victoria, I suppose, of not a different union, but same, same, yeah, same yeah, struggle. Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, um, Mark, I can understand that uh, that uh, union officials would be uh, uh, very concerned, particularly with uh, writs being issued under Section 45D okay. uh, that could very well bankrupt unions. But the, the difficulty that that we had on the ground was that we had to had to try and win this dispute, and the direction by challenging a extremely wealthy uh, multinational company yep. uh, in the legal system uh, it was a it was a david and goliath fight where where we we were going to lose for sure okay so you just mentioned uh, section 45d of the trade practices act which is anti solidarity well, laws yeah well it's uh, basically um, the section of that act that referred to secondary boycotts okay and, uh, and, of course, if we solicited uh, action from other sites, uh, it, it may well have uh, seen the, uh, the, the apparatus start to issue writs. 
The okay. interesting thing was that workers at Cape Wambit and Paniwanika were issued writs anyway uh, for, for damages and lost production, etc. OK, so in the midst of the 1,100 workers at Robe River being locked out, um, officials from Perth, I think such as, was it Jack Marks, um, arrived in the Pilbara and set up other committees? Yes, well, they, they did the barnstorming tours of the other sites, collecting okay. money and telling people they must stay at work and not take industrial action. And uh, 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 Jack has, was fairly <laughs> renowned and, and disliked by a number of us. We used to call him back-to-work Jack. <laughs> Uh, because uh, invariably uh, officials of his ilk would come on the site and tell the workers they had to get back to work because they were in breach of an order or they had to get back to work because it hadn't gone through the state office of the union, etc. So they really were becoming more like industrial policemen than, than people that out there to support the, uh, the workers struggling on the job. And in this time, with the workers still uh, locked out, there was a ship uh, waiting to leave Cape Lambert, as you mentioned before, with iron ore from yeah, Road well, River. That's where it went from the sublime to the ridiculous. Uh, while 1,100 people were locked out, uh, there was a very large ore carrier tied up at the Cape Lambert uh, port facility on the jetty. And, uh, and to let it go, because they they're like floating islands, these things. They're about 200,000-plus tons. Okay. Uh, very large tides, and you need a, a fair degree of expertise uh, for very skilled tug crews to be okay. able to get these uh, these ships into the channel and, and away. So uh, they put it to us that we supply a crew, because at that stage, the Siemens Union would not walk through our picket line. Okay. So the argument was put to the officials, and the officials put it to us, that we should supply a crew to allow them to take the ships through away. And the convoluted logic that followed that was we were going to get brownie points in the media for doing it, and that it would be, the ship would be loaded with good Australian iron ore, not that terrible muck that comes from, uh, from Brazil, okay. uh, which was one of our competitors. So, um, you know, without going into the uh, sort of language that uh, wouldn't be prohibited on the radio, <laughs> we told them in no uncertain terms uh, what they could do with that. OK, that and, was at a mass uh, meeting, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right, we, we told them that. So they convened a meeting of the delegates from all over the Pilbara at the, at the Karatha uh, Hotel, <laughs> and they had the... Trades and Labor Council secretary there, and he came up. He ran the same argument that we should let the ship go. And again, in uh, in language you wouldn't hear on the average Sunday church service, uh, we uh, we told them what to do again. Uh, so a, a week later, they they hit us with everyone. They had Simon Crean and uh, Jack Parks and you know all the state secretaries all came up. <laughs> and uh, basically lambasted the conveners and the delegates. And uh, they were told that they were agent provocateurs and they were uh, you know, people that are going to destroy the union movement <laughs> if we didn't let the ship go. Okay. So by that stage, um, they had enough people in the crowd nervous. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're, we're against our, our best wishes, 
uh, they were able to talk uh, the crowd into, into allowing a crew to let the, the ship go. And that really was, uh, I guess, one of the turning points in terms of who had the upper hold in this dispute. It was, it was a concession that we were never going to get back from. And that's it for another edition of Rank and File Radio and Community Radio 3CR. Tune in next Saturday morning at 8am to hear the third part of the interview with Graham Haynes on the Robe River Dispute. I've been the presenter of the program, Marcus Harrington. And thank you, Marcus. Now, for listeners, there's another um fundraiser for 3CR to keep it on the air. It's a film that's been organised at Kino Cinema. It's happening on the 2nd of July 6.30pm and it's a movie called Amy, the girl behind the name. It's a stunningly powerful and intimate, passionate movie. It's about Amy Winehouse, who died of alcohol poisoning at the age of 27. So if you're interested, please attend this one. It's um, not expensive. The uh, tickets are 20 and $25. So hopefully we can make some money out of the movie. We need to keep the station on air. Now, another announcement is... Um, a event being held at the Brunswick Town Hall. Abbott is the root of all evil. And it's a comedy night. Master of Ceremonies is Rod Quantock, as we all know, the local comedian. And he's accompanied by Ali Mack, Kirsty Mack, Minister of Un-Australian Affairs, Morven Smith, Eva Thompson, and they are going on stage on the 24th of July, Friday at 6.30 p.m. And as I said, as the Brunswick Town Hall is organized by the Green Left Weekly newspaper. One more announcement is the there's a rally to change Labour's cruel refugee policies and the bipartisan brutality and offshore detention and mandatory detention. That's being held on the 12th of July. It's a Saturday. Sorry, it's held on the 25th of July at 12 p.m. It's a Saturday. It'll be in front of the ALP National Conference, the Melbourne Convention Centre, 1 Convention Centre Place, South Wharf. That should be a tram ride for those people who live on the St. George's um, route. Now, we've got a couple of announcements, and then we will go on to Kevin Healy, who is our comedian, so to speak. Here we go. Want to support Tricia's diverse and independent voices? Donate to Tricia's annual Radiothon. We still need your support and it's not too late to donate. Donate now by calling 94198377 or donate online at tricia.org.au or post us a check or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066.
Dum da 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 dum da 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 boom 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 boom. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock, and you're listening to fill in the dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to yes, fill in the. Three CR Community Radio. You got it right. You've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at eight five five AM. We're on digital radio and streaming at three cr.org.au. Three CR has been making trouble since nineteen seventy six, and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape, and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch, and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't three CR's towers. And let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Thank you, Ron Quantock. Now, um, another couple of announcements before we go on to Uncle Kevin Healy. There's a big red book book fair held by the New International Bookshop. And that's from 10pm at Trades Hall on the 27th of June to July the 8th. So it's, it's about a week. So those who are interested in books uh, of all genre, lots of fiction, non-fiction, second-hand and recently published books. So please attend if you're interested in books. But another important um, f- event is a fundraiser, Punks for West Papua, feature- featuring these bands, Bastard Squad, Wolf Pack, Cabin, uh, sorry, Cabin Fever, Liquor Snatch, MCHD, NMA, Ferocious Showed, Stone to Death. Sorry, I'm the, I'm the wrong generation for these band names. I hope you all got that. <laughs> 3 p.m., the Brunswick Hotel, 140 Sydney Road. This again is on the 27th of June, which is today. Um, so... If you like some um, new kind of music, there we go, from 3 p.m. And that's a fundraiser for West Papua. We also have a um, tour run by the Radioactive People, uh, sorry, run by Friends of the Earth. The Radioactive Exposure Tour is a journey through Australia's nuclear landscape. The tour has exposed thousands of people to... uh, the realities of radioactive racism and the environmental and social impacts of uranium mining. This year they are travelling to New South Wales. So if you're interested, uh, Google Friends of the Earth and for more information, Radioactive Tour. If you put that into Google, you should be able to get to um, the tour itself. So we're just about to go on to listen to Kevin Healy. And here we go. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when breaking news overnight. The government has withdrawn true blue Aussie citizenship from the entire ABC staff and rendered them stateless. It's the least they deserve. Big Supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses spoke for all lovers of liberty. As we speak, the staff are being rounded up and taken to Darwin where they will be provided with a boat and two cans of fuel before being dispatched to their new permanent home, the high seas. Permanent, (laughs) Tiny laughed, but also temporary. (laughs) His colleague and sometime rival Malcolm Tunner Bull, the Minister for Communicating Free Speech, just pissed himself at Tiny's wit. 
That is not to say, they said, that we see any humour in this anti-True Blue Aussie attack on our freedoms. Uh, so allowing those who disagree with us to express that disagreement is a crime, is anti-democracy, but, but isn't the ABC independent? Certainly, and we will respect, well, would have and will when we appoint the new Team True Blue Aussie ABC staff, will respect that independence as long as they respect that independence. Uh, Malcolm, this is the second time in a few weeks the SBS journalist you had sacked for expressing a view about the failed invasion which forged our true blue Aussie values, and now this. You, you have often expressed a belief in freedom of speech. I am the strongest believer in freedom of speech, but free speech implies, obviously, there is not free speech. And that's where the ABC in this instance and the SBS sports journalist in his private capacity in that instance abused free speech. Over and above my and our unyielding belief in free speech, in allowing all points of view, lies an overriding responsibility to protect true blue Aussies from terrorists like that journalist and the ABC. Uh, so until you appoint new staff, what will happen? In the interim, and possibly temporarily, we have handed the ABC to that great true blue Aussie, well, great true blue Aussie values-loving US of the UN of the US of the world citizen, Lord Rupert of Wapping, who has taken such a responsible stand on this latest abuse of free speech. Like us, he is a great supporter of free speech when that free speech is expressed responsibly. One of the ABC stable of left-wing presenters, well, she must be, because Lord Rupert's usual suspect giant mind colonist says they're all far, far, far left, Antipodean communications Kremlin, which should be privatised and handed over permanently to a balanced objective owner like, well, like Lord Rupert himself. Anyway, one of those out-of-control left-wing presenters, Amanda Millstone, former Minister for Sundry Things in the Caring business class party government called for politics and by inference industrial relations to move to the sensible centre. Caring employers make the same claim when they inform us industrial relations have swung far too far in favour of the evil unions and lazy avaricious workers. So we asked Amanda to steer us to the sensible centre. Uh, take that road on the right over there, keep going right, and the first intersection, turn right, then keep going. Uh, right, how, how far, Amanda? Well, as I said, just keep going. Uh, eventually you'll see me, and then you'll know you've reached the sensible centre. Uh, I've been travelling for ages, Amanda. How much further? Just keep going. Obviously, if there's a sensible centre, there must be a non-sensible centre. Non-sensible centre, idiot, moronic left, commie, greeny, long-haired, wooden work in an iron, untrue blue crap merchants. Th that's a harsh term, Amanda. Everyone uses commie. Uh, how much further? Keep going. On which the Sensible Centre International Monetary Profits Fund, Big Supremo Christine Lagarde the Wealthy, following another failed dialogue with the Greek government, said the crisis could only be solved if there is a meaningful dialogue. A meaning that they agree with us. 
Our old mate Illapapa Frugger the First got lost on the road to the sensible centre and said climate change is not crap. Further, it's anthropogenic, as opposed presumably to deific. Those who know Christian evangelism must rule the world were aghast that Illapapa was bringing poetics into religion or the wrong sort of religion into the wrong sort of poetics or, or whatever. Expressed on their behalf by a follower of the old Illapapa's faith, USR big supremo contender Jeb Bash the Workers, another giant mine from the hereditary big supremo family, brother of that mission accomplished, reads comics upside down moron. I don't get economic policy from my faith, from the Pope, Jeb sputtered, and I, I kind of wished he'd explained what that had to do with climate change, but I, but I think Jeb was saying religion has no role in politics other than resorting to it when it suits. I get my economic policy from the fact that I'm filthy rich, my friends are filthy rich, and my policy is to keep it that way. And where non-US of people, aliens in other words, stand between the US of and that filthy rich wealth, my foreign policy is we must take steps to eliminate those anti-democratic aliens who resent liberty, freedom and democracy. Another would-be US of candidate said there were many, many, many more important issues facing the planet than climate change. Just a pity he didn't show us his list, or maybe not, probably for the better, got to watch our blood pressure. Back here, that epitome of Christian love thy neighbour, tiny, tiny, bemoaned the anti-team Trublawazi bias of the conclave which elected Franger the first. If they'd elected that true saint... George Appalling, a.k.a. Pell Pot, we would have avoided this utter crap heresy. Pope George knows beautiful, beautiful, profitable coal will drag the world out of poverty, even if the unresourceful, destitute bludgers have to be dragged screaming. We love singing those songs telling us how much we're saving by paying the exorbitant prices at our great supermarket duopoly. And after Woolworth's less than it was big supremo Grant Nobrade announced his departure as he was pushed out the door, the Grant bit being a seven million he is estimated to walk off with, imagine what he'd get if he hadn't seen the profit fall, reports said he would take up a position with a non-profit organisation. And I thought, well, he certainly had plenty of practice. Although that falling profit will settle at $2.15 billion, so don't feel too sorry for the listener. And they've made that profit despite the crippling wages and conditions forced upon them by that most responsible of non-evil unions, the shoppies, so-called because, well, we know it's obvious, it shops its members, whose union fees the caring employer extracts. But unlike them and Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Little Billy Shorten ambition, there are evil union bosses. This evil union payout to respectable caring employer grow riches con profits because the evil construction union heinously suggested there were the odd safety problems on grow riches sites, as if. And the justice of the justice system saw the union pay trillions for suggesting there were safety problems and grow riches itself slapped over the wrist for killing three young pedestrians on one of its sites. 
just to show how evil these workers are, the irresponsible union suggests the law should include a charge of industrial manslaughter under which caring employers like the Grillo, the workers' family, could sit down. Listener, this is class war where there should not be class war. Caring employers like the Grillo, the workers' family, could land in jail in the slot just for killing a few expendable workers. Thank goodness evil unions have no say in the law, other than copying the full butt of it. Sometimes good employers can be caught up in the law. The fair work true blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like an ombudsman, who is a woman, found 456 hospitality caring employers shortchanged 2,752 workers by more than a mere 1.2 million. The restaurant and catering True Blue Aussie profit spokesperson, John Allhart, apologised, I hear you say. Well, well no, no, he, he attacked the ombudsman for releasing the report. Deliberately timed to undermine caring employers trying to get rid of crippling penalty rates, he said, which prompted ACTU Supremo Jed Carney to comment that they want them abolished but don't pay them anyway. See, the offences, John said, occurred when caring employers were a bit confused about changes to the award, inadvertent underpaying as usual. It's always inadvertent. One worker underpaid by a mere $40,000 inadvertent. Uh, so, John, how many workers were inadvertently overpaid in this confusion? Uh, let's see. Uh, none, none, none. Looks like none, but, but that's easily explained. That would be really inadvertent. Thank goodness we know that only unions are evil. Finally, congratulations to the Socialist Party for stepping in after the long-haired commie Greens had agreed to increase the petrol excise in return for the government increasing its spending on public transport to a touch more than the current zero. After opposing the measure for more than a year, the Socialists overnight supported it to ensure public transport spending remained at zero, and all the money went to more roads. We just wanted to prove, little Billy explained, that it's most definitely not easy being green. Yeah, little Billy, let's not let reason or the environment get in the way of hate politics and numbers games. Good morning. Good morning indeed. This is Lynn Beaton. Thank you so much, Kevin. That was fantastic. It must get harder and harder to make comedy and satire out of the world's events, all the events in Australia at the moment, because really they are all in themselves, aren't they? Comedy and satire. I find it amazing. In fact, this week I was thinking I wouldn't be that surprised to hear uh, Abbott call a move a motion in Parliament that we didn't need to have elections anymore and that he would abolish elections. And then I thought, but the, um, you know, the opposition would be outraged probably until they were offered permanent positions as opposition and then they'd agree to accept the deal. What do you think, Lali? I agree. And, it's uh, getting worse. It's just incredible, isn't it? Anyway, on the line we have Humphrey. Um, good morning, Humphrey. Good morning, Lynn. Good morning, Barley. Good morning, what, what do you think about my proposal, Humphrey, that, that Abbott's just about to move no more elections? Well, in one sense, um, parts of the world already have that. I mean, That's right. In the United right. States, we have, we have the plutocracy, which is moving towards the North Korean um, sort of... <laughs> 
monarchical system, and also you have there, you you have disenfranchised so much of the population that you're moving back towards what is called a ruling race democracy. So you've got both ends. You've got the super rich, uh, no one else can get to the top, and then at the other end, the people who might make a difference are not allowed to vote anyway. So we're pretty close. Humphrey, I, I know you're a, you're a political commentator, freelance journalist, and I, I, I was curious to ask this question, and this is part of the, the, the topic you're discussing today, neoliberalism, about the shenanigans in Europe and particularly Greece. Well, there I think you do have that. I mean, to, to get quickly on to this, um, what the financial people have said, we don't pay any attention to uh, election results. That's right. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, that, you know, I mean, this is no surprise to anyone who has any understanding of the nature of um, bourgeois democracy. Mm. Um, but, you know, it is getting more blatant. Um, they try as best they can always uh, to conceal that. But, you know, when when push comes to shove and they want their money back, then there's really no room for negotiation. Mm. No, mm. no. So that leads us on to your topic this morning, Humphrey, which is neoliberalism at last, yes. after <laughs> weeks of delay, but at last it here we are. It hasn't gone away. Well, no, it hasn't gone away, unfortunately. And, um, <laughs> and, and I love the way that you're phrasing what you're going to talk about today in terms of looking at... Um, the ideological attacks as being secondary because often I think um, a lot of us get carried away by the fact you know by the ideological facts and and don't take any notice of what the economic requirements are of capital yeah exactly right you know and there's there's a good reason for this because if you've got to understand the economics of the expansion of or capital, you have to think very hard and you've got to do quite a bit of work to get on top of it. I mean, if you look at what Marx spent much of his life doing, that's what he um, left us with. And much easier to just pick on um, an idea. Now, Marx himself, of course, <clears throat> in an earlier part of his life, in the 1840s, gave, I think, the best example of how this can go completely wrong when he was talking about the young Hegelians in the in the 1840s. And he made a very mocking example that uh, Kevin would indeed have been... Uh, Proud uh, of. Proud of, indeed. I'll just read it very quickly. Once upon a time, a valiant fellow had the idea that people were drowned in water only because they were possessed of the idea of gravity. If they were to get this notion out of their head, say by announcing it to be a superstition, a religious concept, they would be sublimely proof <laughs> against any danger from water. <laughs> and I fear that sections of the left fall into that notion about you know, neoliberalism is the uh, uh, current one. But mm. you know this this notion that, that there are bad people, and indeed there are mm. nasty people, mm. don't disagree with that, and they have... Bad ideas. Well, they're bad ideas for the majority, but the other thing we've got to remember about a neoliberalism is it's not a bad idea for the big global corporates. No. There are only class ideas. Some ideas are good for us. Some ideas are much better for them. And when we're thinking about this, it's not, you know, this is a good idea or it's a bad idea. Once again, we have to ask for whom? Is it a good idea? Mm, yes, and exactly. some, and sometimes um, I must confess I find myself feeling baffled by the ideas because they seem so incredibly stupid. And 
you know, the ideas that become prominent. And then if you shake yourself a bit, you go, actually, because those ideas are covering something up. Well, what they have to drive, and we've got to remember, of course, that that the capitalists themselves don't always, in some ways, can't fully comprehend what it is that they have to do. And they can't come out publicly and say what they're doing, because... Yep. Um, if they did, they would indeed be giving the whole game away. That's right. Um, yeah. So, you know, we have, to, we have to look at this always and say, what is happening in a capitalist society? The inevitable, inescapable thing that has to happen for it to flourish is for capital to expand. Yes. So when we go to neoliberalism, this is one way, the current way, of trying to find ways for capital to expand. Now, this is what we've been talking about on this, you know, series that we do throughout the year and we'll continue for the rest of the year, I hope, to yes. look at this question that capital must expand. I think a really good example of that expansion and also of ideas looking like they're dominant this, that I remember is when neoliberalism was first emerging and there was all this corporatization of public assets going on everywhere. Mm. So, you know, you've got public electricity and public transport and goodness knows all, all of the all of the things pretty much that were utilities and pub and services were being corporatized in order to be privatized. And and do, if you remember back people who are old enough to remember back to those times, you'll remember how we were flooded with ideas about how, you know, the public sector's not as efficient as the private sector and this and that, and underlying all of it was just a capital needed to expand and wanted to get its dirty little hands on the public assets. Is that right, Humphrey? Yeah. I mean, that is the driver from the 70s and particularly through the 1980s into the 1990s. Now, um, it went under different names. In those days in Australia, it was called economic rationalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, it's interesting, if you look at the Macquarie um, Dictionary, which is really Australian usage of the English language, neoliberalism, and they're very quick at getting new phrases um, into the dictionary, it doesn't come, um, you know, it's not there in the 1990s. Um, it wasn't a phrase that was being used while these things were going on. We were using other terms. Well, I mean, they were using other terms to describe it. And now we're kind of projecting it all the way um, um, back into all of those changes. But I think what we have to look at is the sell-off of the uh, governmental um, uh, assets, all the things that you were referring to before. What I think neoliberalism in countries like Australia has done is to move that into a whole new set of uh, uh, areas. I mean, education being yeah. one one prime example. The provision of social welfare. Uh, we're seeing it now with the national um, insurance uh, disability scheme, which is being really put out to private tender. Yes. Uh, people are saying, oh, isn't it a great idea? We've got this support system. But it is being taken out of uh, the hands of government providers, 10,000 people sacked in New South Wales. Mm -hmm. And they have to go and find jobs in corporate provision of these things. And what we're finding over and over uh, in the education system, it's, it's not yet that they've sold off all of the government schools. What they're doing, though, within those schools... I mean, some of us are old enough to remember when textbooks were published by the government printer. Yes. Now, of course, you know, you've got all this material being provided by Google, um, 
there are Google apps, you know, into primary school, into preschool. Mm. There, are, there are billions that are being mm. made out of this. Now, this is the way in which areas for expansion that weren't there before and that, in fact, corporate capital couldn't have supplied, they weren't interested in, there wasn't the, the big bickies to be made out of those areas. So it's moving in to those kinds of areas as well. But, of course, in parts of the world, the United States is a particularly good example, it's been a long time since there's been much there by way of public ownership of electricity or the water supply or those things. Um, I mean, those things had been really sold off probably from the 1940s onwards. But in countries like Australia, where because of the, of the low population densities and the spread of things, only government could supply lots of those things. Now we're getting to a situation where people, you know, where the corporates internationally are thinking, we can actually come in and take the profitable bits out of that. We won't supply a universal service. Yeah. People will simply have to go without if they can't afford to pay. So in telecommunications, they sort of leave all of the structure to the one company, Telstra, which is now privatised, but it's not exactly the same as a sort of, you know, the international corporations coming in, is it? Well, you'd have to look at all of these things as to where... I mean, when, uh, when we look at a corporation, one of the big questions we've got to ask is, who do they get their funds from? Uh-huh. And very often, and the Greeks are a perfect example of this, mm. if you borrow offshore, That's you right. may in fact be looking at something when you say, oh yes, this is a, uh, you know, an Australian-owned company. Mm. Most of the shares are owned in Australia. Mm. But if you're getting all your money offshore, if the banks are bringing it in and lending it to you from offshore, then they've got you by the short and curly. Okay. So you've always got to you know, ask that question. It's a, you know, a question everywhere. Follow the money trail um, to understand where that's coming from. So, Humphrey, you've introduced the notion of, um, of, of the new technologies into this um, matter of you know, taking over public assets into private hands. Um, one of the things that I used to think was, but was, this was probably when technology was still a bit new for us to really think about its effects, but was that it was an indication that capitalism was, you know, in its late stages, that it had to make grabs at things that actually weren't all that profitable? Well, they, what they're doing, as you say, uh, things used to be not so profitable for them, and I think what they're doing is they are working in ways that cut out the unprofitable bits. I mean, what mm. they're doing, the ways in which you had those corporate takeovers they would take over these firms and just sell off large sections of them uh, Mm -hmm. and keep the profitable ones if they were going to keep any part of them whatsoever. And that was what they were doing between one corporation and another. Now I think, well, the last few years they've been doing that into areas which in Australia we would have traditionally thought of as being in the governmental sector. And so more and more those services aren't going to be provided to people at all. Or, as we've seen here, and we've had this as a complete disaster since the early 1950s, that the way in which you get any kind of effective health cover uh, has been through paying for it to these corporate uh, uh, health fund providers. Now, that is shifting more and more. And I think that what we see is the co-payment is a way of leveraging people 
out of the um, sort of uh, bulk billing system. And mm. that's why this question of parents paying more, and we've got to say that because parents already pay, most parents pay when their kids go to government schools. Yes. You know, I mean, that's, that's been a fact, unfortunately, for a very long time. Um, but so paying more is not just a way of raising revenues for the government. It's a way of leveraging parents out of the government sector, which they say, well, if we're going to have to pay here, then we might as well think about going somewhere else as well. So it's yeah. partly partly the driver to do that. But within also, do you the think government sector... On education, do you think also another one of those drivers is this constant attack on teachers in the state system? Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, yeah, there is this monstering that's been going on under, mm. you know, every government, um, that, you know, that there is a systemic failure by the teaching profession, that it is quality teachers that we need. Now, I mean, that's a whole other issue. We can get, you know, other people who are involved mm. in this to talk about that in great detail. But all of these propaganda things are designed to open this up. But at the moment, the big way in which the money is being made is by, you know, I mean, just a little example in a way, all of the NAPLAN material, mm. you know, that you can buy these books that... Um, uh, mm. Pearson and Murdoch, uh, they see this as the way in which they don't provide the infrastructure. They don't do the schools, but they provide, if you like, the physical versions of the software in the schools, that they take over from the teachers, they take over from the techs, that they provide all of that, and that either the government p provides for it or the parents are actually having to pay for that anyway. So, But one must is... assume, Humphrey, that that's a double-barrel success for them because, A, they're making the money out of it, as you point out, but at the same time, one assumes they're sowing their own ideology in those texts. Yeah, well, I mean, well, yeah... Um... <laughs> that's, what, that's one of the things they would certainly. Stumped. That's one of the things they would certainly try to do, and we see this in the demands for what goes into the national curriculum. Yeah. Um, you know that we've had uh, Magna Carta, or as mm. Oliver Cromwell called it, Magna Fata, <laughs> uh, uh, which was really. But a Magna Carta or Magna Fata, and and here in Australia we're trying to deny people their rights of citizenship. But anyway, yes, yeah. moving but, you know, right I mean, along. It was, it was. It was a charter for the one percent. Yes. You know, that's what it was always for. Uh -huh. But, you know, we aren't going to hear about any of that. Um, but <laughs> so, th so there is that ideological attack as well. But what I think we need to remind ourselves in talking about neoliberalism is the need for capital to expand. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. It's not just right. individual capitals. Of yeah. course, it can only happen if individual capitals are expanding. Mm -hmm. It is the whole aggregate of social capital across the world that has to expand. And the last seven or eight years, perhaps even longer uh, in reality, that under the bubble, it was happening in a very superficial way. It was just the figures on the stock market that were expanding rather than the extraction of uh, value from the exploitation of working people because that's how it happens. Mm. I mean, when we think about the expansion of capital, that's what we're thinking about. How is it that they can screw more value out of the labour force? Uh, and all of these things are aimed at trying to do that in some kind of way or other and to get access to people who can be made to add value so that you move out of, you know, uh, out of a uh, uh, government system mm. into a system where the corporates can get your labour 
and extract some value some out of that. Value. And these are the two things we have to think about. Right. A, the expansion of capital, and B, the exploitation of labour to get the value that is then accumulated to become capital for the next round of expansion. Mm. Mm. That's where we're always looking for. And now, um, one of the examples we've seen in the last 15 years is that the provision of employment services which used to be almost in Australia entirely a governmental activity. That's right. Uh, now, more and more of it has been put out, first of all, to non-profits, and that opens the door mm. for then for, for the corporate takeovers. And in the health area, and this is why the trade partnership is so threatening, is that those big hospital corporations in the United States, mm. will, uh, well, they're already here. You know, 20 years ago, they were taking over the funeral services. They were buying up the cemeteries. You know, it came... You know, when my mum died 20 years ago, all of this came as a terrible shock to me. I mean, I mean what was... All the politics that I'd been running and claiming about the foreign takeover of Australia came home to me in a way that I hadn't considered... That yes. is, that the funeral industry, and they were buying up the old cemeteries, and they were doing all kinds of things to get people to spend more money on them, playing on their grief and, you know, all of those things. You know, you haven't, you haven't repaired your mum's grave in 20 years, yeah. you know, things like that. And then they were buying up the, the, the rural cemeteries because people in the cities were saying, oh, it's too expensive, we'll go and get buried somewhere else. Oh, well, we'll solve that. We'll buy them. Now, that was happening 20 years ago there. Now, very much it's in the health area, the aged care area, before you get to the cemetery. Um, <laughs> so all of those areas in which they are looking for new realms to expand into, and the mm. way in which I think we should think about it, we often think about capital expanding into the third world. Yes. You know, that there is a kind of colonial, you know, which is a very problematic term to use about this, but, you know, that it's a kind of colonisation going on. What we have to realise is that the colonisation is happening inside countries like Australia. That's correct. The big Absolutely. expansion of capital is not by going off to the poor part of the world, because they really don't have, you can exploit them and get value out of them, but what you're really after is to get the value and to take the, the market shares in places like Australia. So all of these areas, if we think about them as colonising realms at home that were previously, to some extent, had a protective uh, barrier or a support uh, around them that people's demands... I mean, because governments took these things over, not because governments... Yeah, necessarily good for the people, but because the labour movement got organised, yes, community and welfare organisations got organised and said, we demand these things. We got organised. I mean, these were political pressures, economic, industrial pressures that were put on the system, which is always a conflict. And sometimes you win, sometimes you, you know, it goes in the other direction. But the things that have been won with real struggle over decades after decades were being clawed back as capital ran into crises from the period of expansion of the post-war period from the mid-1970s onwards. Mm. And that's, that's really... Neoliberalism is the kind of current phase 
of capital trying to regain control of who gets how much um, out of the whole system of exploitation. And yeah. at the moment, there's a bit of an ideological battle arising, isn't it, that hasn't been around for some years and, you know, that there is now, there's there's quite a lot of um, broadcasting of ideas uh, that are complaining about or or, or talking about the, the lack of wisdom in the uh, in the continuing divide, you know, of inequality. Oh, yeah, and of course they are pushing very heavily back against that and claiming that, you know, that equality is actually the real driver of economic growth that in some miraculous way then makes for less inequality. But I thought it was very interesting, and I'd like to know what you thought, that the IMF came out with a report last week saying that inequality was bad for economies. Well, well, too much inequality of a particular <laughs> right. kind. You know, I mean, there is, there is no sense that they're going to have what we would call social equality, um, <laughs> in which um, the ownership um, of the resources and productive forces in the society are equalised. They're, mm. they're not doing that. What they're thinking about is that the distribution, that the rate of exploitation has got to the point where you aren't getting the people who are able to supply you with the labour power that you need to be able to exploit uh, and indeed don't have the purchasing power because the other thing that the system has to do, of course, is that when it makes these things that contain the value that that's got from exploiting workers, what they then have to do is to find someone to sell them to and they have to do that at a rate that is truly profitable to them so that they have, you know, out of the surplus value that they take, they can make their profit out of that and it's out of that profit in turn that they get the capital for the next round of expansion. And that's what groups like the IMF do. They look at the whole global system. Their interests are not about the interests necessarily of this global corporation or that global corporation. Mm. What they're having to look at is, I mean, they are the executive committee of the global bourgeoisie. And so they see these bigger concerns, these wider concerns, uh, that go on over a longer period of time rather than the three months you know financial statement or something of, you know of something of that kind, so the IMF you know, bodies of that kind are looking at the real needs of aggregate social capital, how it has to what it has to do within the system to expand but what we 've got to remember of course is that they are internally contradictory. There exactly is no right. solution mm -hmm. to these problems within the capitalist system. All they can do is to shift the burden around either from the corporate to the workers uh, or from one section of the corporate to another section. And that's the battle that is always going on. And that is what we're seeing if you look at the you know, the situation with the European economies at the moment where it is most obvious. Uh, at that I mean, point, Humphrey, at that point about them shifting, um, I think we should finish for today. Okay. We've and still got a lot to go on next time. And I'll oh. tell you what, I'm fascinated next time, Humphrey, to talk about um, the, how, how the, uh, you know, seeing the ideas and not looking deeply at the economics is lazy, safe and vain. Yeah, well, you can talk to us next time about lazy, safe and vain. <laughs> Will you do that? Yeah. Well, yeah, but we need to tie it to some really hard, demanding 
economic analysis of the capitalist system every time and not just get caught in the realm of ideas again. But so we'll take up capital or surplus value and look at the... And and take that as an example. Yes. Okay, okay. Humphrey, that would All be right. terrific. Lovely. So, Talk thank you, you so again. much. So that thank you so much to All Humphrey right. McQueen, um, who talks to us from Canberra every couple of weeks, and who's an independent journalist and political commentator. And thank you for um, the interview that Dick Nichols gave um, prior to breakfast on uh, Spain and its uh, current shenanigans. Of course, um, Kevin Healy, who did the the week that was and Marcus Harrington from Rank and File Radio, part of this program. We will end the program there and goodbye to listeners and thank you very much. I hope all of you will be thinking about contributing to Radiothon to support 3CR Remain On Air. We put out 132 programs to air every week. There's 92 hours of current affairs, 73 hours of music and 19 different languages. So we are a unique radio. Thank you very much, listeners, and we'll be on air in a couple of weeks, Annie and um, Kim will run the next week's program. And goodbye and good morning. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.